The COVID-19 pandemic has affected education, including at the university level, all around the world. More than ever before, students have needed to rely on their support groups. But have you ever wondered about how the educators themselves coped? Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Guelph, and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today, for our inaugural podcast, is special guest Dr. Dan Grunspan, and we'll be chatting about how researchers are uncovering the importance of connections in teaching teams, especially in times of stress. Welcome, Dan. Yeah, thank you. I'm uh, excited to get to be on the inaugural episode. <laughs> and we're very excited to have you. Yeah. So Dan, um, how would you best describe your research if you met some random person on the street? Yeah, so I think uh, the big overarching theme is that all my research aims to improve post-secondary education. There's a lot of ways that you can do that. So you can focus on students, you can think about what instructors are doing, you can think about kind of at the higher administrative and just kind of generally in higher education. Uh, I'm not too discerning, really, I guess, in that in that area. I kind of am willing to embark on any work, but it tends to be, right, I, I want to be doing stuff that ultimately helps improve how undergraduate students learn. Uh, then there's a bunch of other kind of, I think, like random things that I just get interested in, get pulled into, and I'll I'll go for it. But I think that that's the the big overarching theme and the sorts of things that kind of, you know, keep me up at night thinking about stuff. So why do you decide to get into this type of research? Did you ever expect you'd do this when you first got into higher education? No, not at all. Uh, totally fell into it. And I think that's a, it's like, I think it's a very common story for a lot of people who end up doing research, basically education research in, in a post-secondary setting, because it's, it's fairly new. So I was earning my PhD actually in biocultural anthropology. I was really interested in, in human evolution, evolution of human social mm. learning. And the Basically, what was going on at the time, I was starting to get interested in social network analysis. So I was taking a social network analysis course, and this coincided with my first time teaching uh, at, at the university level as a, as a TA. And I was doing this in a biology department, even though I was an anthropology student. And there was all kinds of education research going on in the biology department mm-hmm. that I was TAing for. And there just kind of became this really perfect kind of confluence of things going on where I was like, hey, it'd be really cool to apply some of the social network analysis stuff, thinking about social learning in this, you know, kind of like larger context where a lot of education research is going on. So I started doing that with a collaborator um, as a grad student. And then it was just like, from there, I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. This is like really cool and like super interesting. And then I kind of pivoted from there. So then it kind of became much more of my focus was just focused on, okay, education, higher education networks, things like that. And then it's, I think spread spread from there. <laughs> well, isn't that kind of usually how it ends up going, where you're pursuing something and then all of a sudden you find yourself falling into a new hole? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, in some ways, right, that's the exciting thing about research is if you can find a way to make it happen, right? If you can find the funding, if you can find these things, like you can pursue the questions mm-hmm. that, you know, you think are really interesting and really important. So I've been lucky that I've gotten to do that. 
So, I know you're relatively new to the University of Guelph, so I was curious, have you found anything different teaching at Guelph versus other universities? Uh, it's hard It's hard for me, I think, to accurately reflect on how the University of Guelph and the department here may differ from other ones that I've seen, partially because I've entered at such a strange time. <laughs> uh, so, right, I think, you know, the the overarching, you know, primacy of dealing with the pandemic and teaching in the pandemic and just all the things that are going on, right? It's, it's really hard to make a fair comparison. I think what I've been really impressed with is just the engagement and how much how, how much the department and the college cares about instruction and teaching mm-hmm. uh, and just that commitment. And I think that that's something that I've seen pretty unmatched in a lot of places where like it really is something that matters to a lot of people um, and that there's kind of respect given to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, there's a, like the people don't care, right? They don't do yep. podcasts to highlight it or anything <laughs> like that, right? So, so yeah, so I think I'm like really impressed in that in that regard. Speaking of teaching during a pandemic, uh, you recently published a study titled Instructional Communities of Practice During COVID-19, Social Networks and Their Implications for Resilience. So what first encouraged you to study that topic? So I, I didn't. Um, I was actually invited to work on the project after it, it was started. Oh. Um, yeah, so, so I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer as if I was my, my co-authors, Emily Holt and Susan Keenan, mm-hmm. University of Northern Colorado. Uh, so they were both teaching, right, uh, at the time, at, you know, as basically, you know, their department was shifting into remote instruction and kind of seized upon the opportunity. They're like, this is a really cool opportunity to maybe collect some data and see what's going on. And I think that they were getting really interested in doing some kind of social network study. So they knew that they wanted to do something in those regards. And then of course, right, this whole situation was thrust Mm -hmm. upon them and they quickly acted together to start collecting data. Yeah, so I was was kind of invited into this and I was like, yeah, that sounds super fascinating. So once they kind of had the data and they were looking at it, they're like, okay, we we should reach out and find someone who can maybe help us think through this. So I was like, yeah, I'd be happy to sit down and work through this with you. So out of curiosity, have you worked with your co-authors before or was this some kind of a random happenstance thing that just worked out? Yeah, so this was a new collaboration. I'd never worked with them before. Uh, I think the, the background, and I think this, this actually is one of my favorite things about the study. I uh, gave a workshop on social network analysis in higher education. Uh, one of my co-authors was uh, basically a participant in that workshop. So like a four-hour workshop, I was like, you know, you're not going to really learn how to do social network analysis in four hours. That's unrealistic. But what I love is to get you started, right? Mm-hmm. To be thinking about how to do this, how to set up the study, how to get those data, and then, you know, get yourself going so then you know that apparently helped them get the study going and then i think once they started diving into the data they're like oh, okay well we should find someone else to do this and then she reached out to me and i was like okay yeah so i thought i thought that was like a really cool moment right it's like oh wow it's like i ran this workshop and i mean you know it came full circle back to me i guess but it, it did something right it started a project and that was a really really cool thing to see happen so i was really happy so for our listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the paper that we're discussing just yet, um, I would describe this paper as modeling the interactions between both university faculty, so like profs, and graduate students who are working as graduate teaching assistants or GTAs. These interactions show who is sharing things like resources, advice, even emotions. And the idea was to understand how these interactions can contribute to resilience in teaching. Do you have anything else you would like to add on to this description of your study, Dan? 
Yeah, so I think one of the big things is the context. So this was the interactions that occurred essentially right after it was announced that all teaching was going to move to remote instruction, right, during the, I guess it was the winter or spring, depending on where you are, um, semester of 2020. So what this was capturing was who were people interacting with in that time after the announcement. So it's basically, it's like two weeks after that was announced, right? They had like a week to prepare to move online. I think they were like on spring break or something like that. And it was like, well, as soon as spring break's over, you're, you're remote, you have to figure out how to do that. Uh, so I think what was captured was really interesting. It's, it's these interactions that are going on in that time frame, and what are people doing? It's this moment in time where everyone's kind of panicking and trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. And I think that that greater context is what made this study exciting. So a big focus of your paper was based on using exponential random graph models. Um, and these were then further used to create these diagrams called sociographs. For our listeners, a sociograph is kind of like a giant web that has different color and shape coded pins. And then strings between these different pins represent relationships between different individuals. Um, do you have anything like to clarify about that image, Dan? Yeah, so these sociographs, right, these are kind of, it's, it's a picture of a network that lets you visualize what is related to what, right? And in this case, it's people and different types of interactions regarding teaching that they have with each other over this period of time. But it could be anything, right? You could look at a power grid or, you know, how you can connect from one city to another, you know, via flights or trains or something like that, right? Those are all networks that can connect with each other. So but there's a lot of different kind of cool things that you can visualize this way. Um, in some cases, these can be really, really useful because it just gives you a, it gives you an opportunity to look at kind of large scale structures, look at kind of zooming in a kind of more micro level things that are happening. What really stood out to me when we started visualizing these was the fact that most of the interactions that we see really just happen, and, and it's not surprising, but most of the interactions that we see happen within uh, basically mm. teaching teams. So if there's an instructor or two instructors and a bunch of TAs, there's really dense connections going on there a lot of times, right? And that, that kind of rules over a lot of, right? If you're going to predict who's talking to who about teaching in this time, it's, it's people who are, you know, teaching right. the same course together. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Um, but it was just kind of cool to be like, oh yeah, this, this is obviously a thing. And there are a lot of studies out there that kind of look at, you know, departmental teaching networks and things like that, and don't really consider that big underlying fact that, you know, if you're teaching with someone like that is going to predict whether or not you're doing a lot of um, stuff together. That was the approach. Speaking of teaching teams, later on in your study, you realize there seems to be more of these kind of isolated interactions between separate groups of faculty members in GTAs that are teaching the same courses. So while most of these are very, very similar in terms of having a high amount of interconnectedness, so, you know, imagine like four pins, but there's a web between every single individual. Others are far more isolated with one or two random floaters and one or two people who are really focused in the center. Why do you think there's so much variation between these teaching teams? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. This like some courses, like everybody was doing everything together. Mm -hmm. Everyone was talking about their emotions. People were co-constructing materials together. Uh, and then others, it was just like, no one's doing anything together, right? It's like, basically what that meant was the faculty, whoever was the instructor just said, okay, TA is like, I'm just gonna take the wheel and do things. And, you know, it's, it's hard. I, this is something that I wish that we knew more about, right? This is where it's like, these were the data that we had. So we can kind of cast light on something like this, but like actually understanding what was going on would be fascinating. So I can kind of guess based on my conversations, largely with my, 
my co-authors on this as far as what was going on from they, what they what they have told me. And I, I think it's a mix of things. So first, a lot of it, I think, depends on what was that course and what were the roles of the TAs. Because the main things that disappeared was, were the TAs really involved? Were they really interacting with the instructor? And were they interacting with each other? Because, um, you know, regardless, it's like, the instructor is definitely still teaching the course and the TAs may have some kind of role left, but maybe not depending on, and that may be reflected in the relationship. So mm-hmm. if TAs, their primary role was to set up in-person labs or just, right, just kind of setting those up, then all of a sudden, if those in-person labs are just canceled and the instructor made the decision, okay, we're just not going to really do anything there. Those TAs just kind of didn't have anything to do. And my understanding is in some cases that did happen. Like there were TAs who just didn't have anything to do in their in their class anymore so that was just kind of like okay that's my role you know i don't have much to do here yeah it totally makes sense um it didn't happen to me but i definitely know some individuals who are in that same boat where they're just kind of like cut adrift and left to fend for themselves uh but you could imagine another class where right there's still a lot of grading going on and the seminars are moved online and they need to be changed and things like that in which case right the tas are still very involved but then i think the other thing to think about is and what I think is the more interesting thing that was going on was just the way that I think instruct the, the variation in how instructors dealt with the moment. So in some cases, right, and the ones that are super connected, and especially I think the one that illuminates a lot is there's a network where we're asking, who did you co-construct materials with, right? And that to me is like a really kind of high level interaction. It's not like I'm telling you to do this. It's we need materials come together like in a meeting and let's together, right, build this, you right. know, what this class is going to look like. Um, and there were classes where everybody was involved with each mm-hmm. other, building materials together. And that is very different, right? As you kind of point out. And like, to me, like this is an instructor who is now kind of not just delegating, but like being on the same level and kind of having this kind of vulnerability of like, we're all in this situation and I need your help, right? Like they're willing to kind of step down and do mm-hmm. this. And uh, others, right? It was just like, everybody step out of the way. I'm going to just do this. So... Later on in the study, you make a point showing that, you know, it might be better to have more delegation and more interconnectedness between members of the teaching team. So if, you know, knock on wood, someone gets COVID, the whole course doesn't just like fall apart if only one individual, you know, has taken the wheel and is dragging the the course at that point. So with that in mind, do you think it'd be worthwhile to foster more interconnectedness and I guess sharing of teaching responsibilities within teaching teams? going forward? I think that that would be great. I think, I mean, <laughs> on a larger point, right, I think that, you know, graduate training needs to involve just kind of more aspects of teaching training in, in general across the board, right? This is, mm-hmm. I think, something that's been discussed more and more and kind of recognized as an, an important neglected part of graduate training very frequently and one that can actually offer a lot of benefits for actually research and the ability to do research is actually the kinds of things that you can learn from from pedagogical training. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I don't know how many crises there actually really are, right, (laughs) that disrupt teaching to this level. But it's certainly helpful, right, to have a lot of people who are capable of stepping up and stepping in in a moment where you may need them to. And I think the nature of a lot of academia is like, a lot of people seem to be right it's like how do you replace this one person who's supposed to be teaching mm-hmm. this whole course if they go down right tomorrow right and in, in a seamless way that isn't hyper stressful and one great way to do that is to kind of have right a teaching team that is all aligned together knowing what's going on that can kind of pull things together so i think you know i think that that's one model 
through which this sort, you know, you can kind of be more prepared for these sorts of things to happen where you have, you know, graduate instructors, right? Basically ready, like, and feeling comfortable and it's not too stressful to say, yeah, you can probably teach this class the next day. So zooming in just a little bit, do you think the main lesson of the paper being that increased interconnectedness is important for resilience can be applied to other departments, um, other universities, or perhaps even other countries, or even just not just universities, but say companies? Yeah, I think big time. And I think the idea to approach this from a resilience framework uh, really came from just other areas that looked at this. So there's work that looked at emergency networks in response to the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center, for example, right? And uh, people have kind of looked at what were the calls that were going out between different kind of emergency entities and like who were really important players and what was the overall network structure that basically allows a rapid emergency response, right? Uh, so the idea to kind of approach it from this framework was borrowed from other applications of thinking about the importance of these kinds of social structures in emergency situations where you have to act quickly. This is very different though, right? Because the way that a university mm -hmm. department works, it's there are kind of right official positions and things like that, but there's no like emergency yeah. transition to remote instruction, you know, agency within a department per se. So, but there are, and actually that's, that's not entirely true. So if you think about uh, the college here, the College of Biological Sciences, right? So there's the CBS Office for Educational Scholarship and Practice, the COESP. My understanding is as soon as things hit here, so this is before I was here, but my understanding is as soon as remote instruction happened, the COESP started basically oh. having a ton more faculty oh. start coming to talk about teaching and to figure out how do I transition to remote, right? So in some cases, right, I think what's really interesting is there's a lot of different ways that I think you can be resilient as a college or a university or a department. So you can kind of have these like centralized bodies that are there to try to help, right, facilitate this transition, right? So I think, you know, it'd be really interesting to think about, okay, well, what happened here and how important the COESP must have been in helping a lot of faculty as serving as like those go-to resources. Oh, for sure. I bet especially for faculty who were kind of more, you know, analog that suddenly had to transition to the online space and maybe even like completely shake up how their course was taught and the structure of it all. I bet the COESP was very helpful for them. Yeah. In the case here, this is, I think, much more just kind of, you know, unstructured. And, you know, we part of the titles, we're talking about this as a community of practice where th these are just kind of the social interactions that you know, the social ties and the social resources that you have access to just in general. And there was like no clear, right, centralized body or even person in this case, where it was like, this was like, the, this was the group of people that you go to. It was very like, just kind of organic. Everyone just kind of activated whatever relations that they had, whether, you know, whether it was in their teaching teams or, you know, other faculty, for whatever reason, they were, they were going to each other, friendships or you know, this is something that I think, you know, departments, universities, countries, organizations kind of do need to think about because succeeding through hard times, right, depends on kind of the culture and institutions and structures that you have in place. So I think we can both agree that having more or like deeper relationships are really important to have, especially when you don't have a central body that you can turn to. So what do you think can be done to encourage not the universities, but also companies to really kind of foster that kind of deeper or more relationships. Yeah. And I think, I, I think that's a really interesting and an important question. I think that's something that also, right. A lot of people are just focused on I think organizations, right. They want to 
mm-hmm. nurture right the right kind of you know culture basically and i think that's what it really comes down to it's like how do you nurture this culture that mm-hmm. that makes you know the, the whole greater than the you know some of its parts and things like that so taking another further step back was there anything about this work that particularly surprised you i think it was just how interconnected the overall department was um yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. there were people who were like, I guess, just more connected in general than others. But it mm-hmm. was, I mean, most people had some kind of connection somewhere. No one was like completely isolated and no one just totally dominated the network. And a lot of the networks that I've dealt with in the past really do have these like people who are just like, okay, like this is like the person or these are the people or this is the institution, right? It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like, it's like you remove them and everything changes. Like there, there really wasn't that in this network. And I think that's really cool i think it's just really interesting and it, mm. it's it's again i think it kind of represents this potentially one way right that you can express resiliency is right kind of having this larger community where it seems like a lot of people feel like they can kind of turn to each other and now i'm curious like is this representative if we were to do this in a bunch more departments if we could go back and somehow magically collect data from a whole bunch of different departments was this overwhelmingly what things looked like or was this mm-hmm. kind of an outlier i, I don't know Speaking of going back, if you could go back in time, is there anything you'd like to go back and change with your study and why? Oh, yeah, always. There's all, <laughs> I mean, that's just a fact, right? There's never... Always. Who's ever published a study and not been like, man, I want to go back in time and do this differently, right? Like, that's such a rare feeling. Um, I think I would love to just know more about... I mean, all we have in this study and all the data that we have are just structural. So that just means we know who's talking to who, who's doing what with who. Like, mm-hmm. I would love to know right, when we were talking about like the different independent kind of course teams and how different they were, I'd love to know the outcomes of that, right? I'd love to know Hmm. what was it like to be a TA in this very connected team and what was it that led to that? And then like in the very disconnected teams, like what's the outcome of that? What did that class look like, right? What what were the students' experiences when this happened? So yeah, Yeah. there's all kinds of things that I'd love to know. (laughs) So other than building a time machine, what do you think are the next steps for this work? Um, yeah, I think kind of the next steps specifically, like, like very proximate to this work would be what, what are these other relationships and can we go back and actually see if there's other questions we can ask. I think more broadly, this has really kind of raised an interest in me, uh, similar to kind of what we were talking about as far as the different ways that you can express resiliency. So like, mm-hmm. for example, like the CoESP, right, and the role that it played, understanding that kind of a model would be really interesting. And actually, in working with a completely different data set from a completely different university, um where it seems like this kind of thing happened where there is a centralized organization within um a larger college where there's kind of a group of faculty that are kind of very teaching focused and we actually do have data on what their networks look like before and after the Mm -hmm. the transition to remote instruction in that department and it looks like early on at least that right these faculty were absolutely critical Mm -hmm in these networks, right? Like it, it seemed like that's it. Having this kind of like specialized, these kind of specialized roles, they, they were like a decentralized body that really were important and took on this really big role. So that's enough questions from me. Um, we're going to take some from social media now. So our first question is, how do we get to know the students we teach virtually and create the same relationships as we would with in-person learning? I mean, certainly there is normally a network being formed between students and their teachers, and it has been, you know, greatly affected the switch to the virtual format. So do you have any tips for this uh, listener? 
Yeah, I mean, again, I, the way I always think about things, the number one word whenever I think about teaching is structure, right? You want to accomplish something, you structure it into your class mm -hmm. as part of the class. So it's, you need to be the person to kind of structure that in, right? It's, uh, and I think there's a lot of different ways that people like to do this. So it's like, if it's a really small class, I've heard of people saying, you know, it's like, well, you know, and you're not teaching a lot of classes. So I think, right, I've heard the advice. It's like, you know, set up a one hour meeting with all your students, but that like works in the context of like, I have one, mm. I'm not teaching four classes, right? Like yeah. I'm not teaching three classes. I don't have a thousand students, right? Um, <laughs> but I think you really want to show that effort that you do want to get to know your students, right? And I think you can make that assignment. Like I want a personal email from you or you, you know, send me something about yourself. But then I think, again, kind of going back to this idea of like vulnerability, safety, things like that, you need to do it too, right? It's like you owe your mm -hmm. students information about right. you. Um, and I think to the extent, right, and to the extent that you can do it one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. the issue is, right, I think with remote instruction that a lot of people are realizing is it becomes so much more one-on-one -on -one from a student faculty perspective. But if you have a ton of students, mm -hmm. it becomes untenable to really actually maintain right really close relations with all your students all the time and things like that um so, but i think the effort needs to be there right it's it's like yeah it's structuring it in and putting in that effort and i think just there's there's evidence that just putting in that effort is all that matters so speaking of effort or rather the perceived lack of effort here's our next question how can you create a feeling of accountability when students who bother to sign into class have their cameras and mics off all the time so anecdotally speaking, as someone who's been part of teaching teams and even attending conferences, I know that many students often, you know, attend less than they would for in-person classes and don't really participate in discussion very much, which often kind of adds to the divide between students and uh, teachers. So how would you recommend, you know, trying to improve that or trying to really reach out to students? The, the first thing to practice, I think, is just recognizing how much empathy you need to have, because we don't know what their situation is, right? And we tend to project what we think is going on based on our lived experiences and what we're familiar with onto other people, right? So it's like, we'll meet someone new and they'll remind us of someone that we know, and then we'll kind of fill in the blanks on someone that we don't actually know based on someone that we do, right? And I think, right, it's mm -hmm. like, it's just the, the general bias that we have. And I think with students and especially in the pandemic, right? It's like, we don't know what their situation is. They may not be able to turn their camera on, right? They may not have a suitable background or, right? Like they're going to be in, embarrassed to turn it on. Like there's a million, I think, very legitimate reasons why students may not right. be able to or be comfortable turning their camera on. So I think like kind of the, the kind of big background to my response to this is going to be first practice empathy and understand that, right? We can't assume that you know the reasons mm -hmm. that students are not doing things are not legitimate. So I think that's kind of one thing. Um, but then there are right also I'm, I'm on board with the fact that it's like yeah it's like we kind of do want our students to be like engaged and there and if they can turn their cameras on we do want their cameras on we want them to show up to class and we want them to do things. But again I think mm -hmm. that we can, uh, structure right it's like how are we structuring our classes if right. if yeah. it's just a recorded lecture or we're just talking to them online what about that structure mm. is telling your students that they need to be there and engaged, right? So it's, you need to structure your class in a way that, again, rewards them for doing the things. And for me, it's always like, you know, points. So can you somehow build points into your class? But I think the really big answer is, you know, make your class as interactive as it can be if you're trying to do the synchronously, like give them reason to show up. So that brings us to our last question for today. Do you have any final comments to make about your work? And if our listeners only take away one thing from our chat today, 
what do you hope it is? The one thing from our chat, man, I think our, our chat just diverged. So now I'm just like thinking about all these really great questions. I think like, I guess to stay on theme and especially, yeah, I think to stay on theme mm-hmm. with the, the talk and with, I guess the moment or not the talk, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the, the paper that we discussed. And I guess the moment in time that we live in is, I guess, really kind of thinking about the importance of social relationships across kind of everything as we move through. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, I, I've been kind exactly. of continually frustrated with the idea of, you know, social distancing, because it's really, it's physical distancing, right? What we're, what we're trying to accomplish is physical distancing. And I think like mm-hmm. some people kind of caught on early that this was a bad title. I don't think people totally think that deeply about it, but it's, we shouldn't be socially distancing. We should be physically distancing as, as needed. Um, but we should be socially as close as we can be right now, because I think we're living in a time where, right, that social closeness continues to be really important. And I think right here, we're studying a social network where everyone is physically distanced, but they were not socially distanced. And I think that, you know, as we kind of approach things moving forward, I think we kind of need to, you know, work together thinking about the social relations that we do have and how we can nurture them and how we can kind of rely on them to help kind of support everybody through what continues to be a, you know, difficult time in, in humanity. So, yeah. So carry on. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we can really do. Yeah. Carry on. And so that brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Dan Grunspan, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your host, me, Michael Lem, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uofguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at uofgcbs. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Bosnow on Upbeat. There'll be details in the show notes. And until next time, please stay curious. Thank you.